Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooldop Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr. Seanich Anderson is a chartered research psychologist and freelance neurodiversity consultant with many years experience in neurodevelopmental disorders. For the last eight years, she's been research manager at Tourette's Action in the UK and has now set up her own website, www.neuro-diverse.org. She has recently created the Behavioural Therapy for Ticks Institute, the BTTI, which offers behavioural therapy training for ticks and other events for clinicians and therapists. She's contributed to the European Clinical Guidelines for the Treatment of Tourette's Syndrome and has created many podcasts and topic guides on Tourette's Syndrome as well and written many publications. She's a board member of the Belgian Tourette's Syndrome Patient Association and she's a member of the Organizing Committee for Ticks and Tourette's Around the Globe, which is an umbrella organization representing tick and Tourette's syndrome advocacy across Europe. Welcome, Dr. Seanich Anderson. How are you, Seanich? I'm really good. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm, I'm very excited about this interview and to place it in context. I know you're a neurodiversity consultant and over the course of the pandemic, I'm sure you have been researching and talking to colleagues about how neurodiverse children in general have been responding to these extraordinary times. So can we just start by just hearing what you've been hearing? And just listening to your reflections on the last year and just what's in your mind, you know, when you, what you're thinking about in terms of your own research at the moment. Thank you. Yes. What a lot of challenges that everybody has been facing. And I think in regards to all of our mental health, it's been a strain. I think it's gone the, the pandemic with the different waves and lockdowns and security measures, etc. in all of the different countries, you know, working from home and all of those pressures. And for some children and some people, home actually not being a safe place has led, as we know, to increases in mental health difficulties for uh, so many. And I think in regards to the neurodiverse population, I think it's been mixed. It's been so varied in terms of sort of support shutting down or being much more difficult to access than usual. So perhaps people who have sort of respite care and sort of centres to go to and social support in that way, that just not being available to them. And then in regards to other groups of people, for example, I'm very interested in tics and tic disorders and things like that. And hearing from parents and, and adults who also have Tourette syndrome, the, the massive increases in tics that they've been experiencing during this year, really sort of off the scale in terms of the severity and frequency that they're, they've experienced. And, and we're, we're really feeling that this is very much related to stress and anxiety. We know that ticks and anxiety are so sort of interrelated. And of course, for people, we'll, we'll talk a lot more about ticks, I'm sure, today. But um, uh, one of the aspects of ticks is that they are quite suggestible. So 
For example, if you have a, a coughing tick or something that is sort of a bit socially unacceptable during COVID, it's been exceptionally difficult for those people. You can imagine traveling on public transport, for example, and having sniffing or coughing ticks is you know, the, the stigma around that is so much more. And, and luckily, there's been good reactions from patient associations producing sort of special cards, information cards to for people with ticks to give to others on public transport or in public spaces so that they, they can explain, you know, I, I don't have COVID. These are actually ticks and I, I can't help them. It's just something that happens. So the patient associations have had to respond, obviously, to to that, which is great. They have themselves, of course, as all the charities have experienced a very difficult time. I think from hearing from patients and families, it's been also in some cases, some children have enjoyed staying at home and actually some of the stresses have been removed, although they're sort of timetable, their day-to-day living has changed. They've got into a rhythm and actually, especially for children with ticks, they don't have to go on the bus and on public transport and have that immense stress before they even get to school. And also being at school quite often with the social stigma, etc. around ticks, the schools being closed has meant that um, they actually don't have to be in that environment that they find so stressful. So although there's been a big increase in ticks and and stress, for some we hear that um, actually it's been an interesting time and a time perhaps of removal of some stressors in their lives. And you can also easily understand why it's so tempting for a parent or carer or even teachers to allow a child who's more comfortable to be at home doing their online. You know, I know I've met many educators who feel terrible. They're sort of encouraging the child back through the the trauma sometimes of get the school journey back into school, dealing with COVID. And I think people have felt a real tension there, you know. It's important to encourage children to go to school, but equally, that's why we've seen rising homeschooling rates, I'm sure. And I think that also it has led to more evidence or more reason to flexible school timetables, for example, and flexible schooling. You know, we've had to be flexible during the pandemic. And actually, for some of the children, that has worked better in those cases. So maybe we can sort of carry on some of the things that we've learned during this period also into their their schooling. So those are some COVID keeps, as I like to refer to them, that perhaps schools can introduce a little bit more flexibility for particular children. It's definitely Mm -hmm. for their for their benefit, because you know, they can still learn, they can still get the work done. It just needs to be done in a slightly different format. And that's to everybody's advantage. Now, the reason for this interview is, you know, I'm obviously a researcher who tries to stay in touch with what's going on in the research community. But even in the press, the volume and explosion of ticks was noted, you know, many months ago, particularly in teenage girls. And I think what I ascertained from those press reports is people weren't really sure what was going on. And I think traditionally people associate ticks with Tourette's syndrome. That's the kind of the basic, you know, knowledge level. But this seems to be, I'm hearing from parents all the time now who have had, they have no family history of any of those of neurodiversity, they didn't know their child was anxious at all. And suddenly they're noticing these little ticks that seem to have slipped into family life. And I think that's where we are, that suddenly ticks are a talking point. 
not just for, for the neurodiverse population. So can we talk a little bit about, you know, your response to that and where we are with it? Hmm. No, I think they're, they're, again, this is such a diverse group of people. It's very difficult to make generalizations, but I think what's um, been happening. So we've got ticks in childhood anyway. So these are ticks, they're vocal sound sniffing, coughing, maybe whistling, grunting, etc. And those are simple vocal tics. And then you could have complex vocal tics. That's where words or phrases are perhaps said. And that's where for Tourette's syndrome, for example, a lot of people think, oh, Tourette's syndrome is swearing. But of course, actually, you know, when you have a look at the information, only about 10 to 15 percent of people with Tourette's syndrome swear and have that coprolalia tic. And then we have the other kinds of tics, which are movement tics or motor tics. And these can be small, uh, they can be blinking, they can be nose scrunching, they often start around the face. And then you can have larger motor tics, so involving any part of the body, the hands, the arms, the legs, the feet as well. So there's lots of different types of tics. And tics are almost part of childhood. You will see lots of tics when you know what to look for. And they will come and go in childhood and they will often just sort of disappear. If they go on for a longer period of time or they're causing the child great difficulty, at that point, we would probably say, you know, it would be good to get some advice from a healthcare professional. And then if they are particularly troublesome, you may end up with a diagnosis of a tick disorder. And there are different ones. There's transient tick disorders, which come and go. There's chronic tick disorder. And then there's Tourette's syndrome. And for Tourette's syndrome in particular, you would need to have both motor and vocal tics for over a period of a year. So you would get that diagnosis. So I think what's been happening during the pandemic is that those people that had tics already, maybe quite mild tics, have found that their tics have become much worse during the pandemic. We think that's related to anxiety. Those other people who tics may have gone unnoticed, you know, very mild tics, just you know, it's just John's little habits or something like that. And they will have increased greatly too. And then you're right, there's this other group of young, mostly adolescent girls who have been coming to clinics. And a few research papers have started to come out describing this group of patients with um, explosions of ticks. Now, I think we do want to be careful in our language because, um, you know, it has made headlines, as you've said, it's been in quite a few newspapers about, uh, you know, ticks being contagious or an explosion of ticks. And I'm not trying to belittle, it's very frightening. And people are obviously having symptoms and having these, you know, conditions and they need to seek help and we're here to support them. But I think we want to be careful and try and have an air of calm. We want to look at the research evidence, et cetera, as to what's going on and to support these patients and their, and their families. Now, one of the things that seems to be quite clear from the research is that boys are typically four times more likely to develop a tick than girls. I think that was already quite well established. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and potentially, you know, has, have people explored why that's the case? Because obviously now the attention has turned, for example, to adolescent girls and the onset of ticks. But let's just talk about the sort of, you know, what's happening there and, and why that, that, that sort of figure has emerged. Yes, for tick disorders like Tourette's syndrome, there's a four to one, a three to one ratio where boys are, are more likely. And I think when we look at other neurodiverse conditions, so maybe ADHD and OCD and maybe behaviour issues and things like that is Quite commonly that there is this skew in terms of gender. 
I'm not entirely sure if we know the the real reason behind that, but um, all of these things, um, all of these conditions have a genetic component to it. It's not things that people are doing during childhood or adolescence or anything like that. And there's really a genetic component there. So there's a, a predisposition to to having ticks. And um, it, it may be that parents and, and child turn up at clinic and sort of say, you know, there's no family history of ticks at all. But mum or dad actually might be exhibiting a few ticks themselves in the in the session. They might have a, a very light kind of blinking tick. That's one of the most common or a, a sniffing tick, something like that. It's quite difficult to identify them, isn't it? Because when you start looking for them, you think, wait a minute, you know, you start thinking about family members who've always had one and you just, you've never really paid attention to it or mentioned it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of education that we need to do around around ticks. I used to sort of talk mostly about Tourette syndrome, but actually when we think about the ticks that come and go in childhood, the transient tick disorder, the chronic tick disorder, and Tourette syndrome. We lump all of those things together that all have ticks as a, as a common feature. And actually, that means there are a lot of ticks. And in fact, we, we, you know, researchers believe now that tick disorders have the same prevalence as autism at 1%. So that's one in every school child. And when I tell people that quite often, they're a bit shocked. The same prevalence as autism. But, you know, we have much more understanding of autism. There's much more kind of public awareness of autism than previously. A lot of work has been done. So school teachers will have had children with Tourette syndrome and definitely ticks within their classes coming through. And we'll talk about the management of ticks um, shortly, but there seems to be an established relationship between anxiety and ticks. Yet recently I've been contacted by lots of parents saying there is no sign, obvious sign of anxiety in their child, but the tick has surfaced, if you like. So what do we know about that relationship between ticks and anxiety? Is it always the case that a child with a tick will be underlying, you know, have underlying anxiety? I don't think we can say always. I mean, I think mm. there's a common saying, if you've met one person with Tourette syndrome, you've met one person with Tourette syndrome. And I think the same is for ticks as well. I mean, it may be that there are perhaps some undiagnosed co-occurring conditions going on that haven't been problematic up until now. They haven't reached a threshold where there would be a diagnosis, perhaps. But uh, anxiety might be one. Also, perhaps autism spectrum disorders. We have a better understanding now that also girls are quite often perhaps more difficult to diagnose. And, and perhaps late, diagnosis comes later when they're actually adolescents. So it may be that there's some of those. But Really, in terms of what's been happening during COVID, there's there's sort of a lack. Just a couple of research papers have come out so far, and they're just really looking at some case studies of who's been coming to clinic and what kind of ticks have been sort of prevalent during COVID. But at the moment, we're sort of really lacking research, and that's something where we're behind in terms of where autism has a, a lot more money and awareness as a condition. Ticks and Tourette's are quite far behind, I think. I think one of the interesting aspects of ticks is that they can be helpful to children. So they will use them to calm themselves down, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm quite interested in where is the threshold between them being quite useful and helpful to the child and not something they would ever want to get rid of, if you like, as opposed to this is really impairing my life. And I just wondered at what point should the parent 
decide to sort of do something about the ticks and the way in which they're presenting, if that makes sense. Mm. I mean, I, I haven't heard many people describe their ticks as useful, to be honest, but I think there's lots of adults, especially, who are great role models for uh, people who have ticks and they've gone on and had you know, really great quality of life. They've had social lives, they've got married, they've had jobs, and often jobs that people, you know, the general public might not even think of. Hairdressers, barbers, there was a brain surgeon in America who had Tourette's syndrome and tics. And we kind of, it's almost a bit shocking to hear that somebody could have a career like that. But actually, when people are concentrating, they find that their tics can subside. So that might be when they're playing the PlayStation or playing music, when they're exercising. And these can be very useful things to do when ticks are becoming bothersome and the child is having difficulty. So they, they have some go-to activities that can help them with their ticks. But I think there are around 300,000 people in the UK with Tourette syndrome, and um, certainly not all of those are in touch with the patient association. So they're off with ticks, living with ticks, and really living good lives and not they might look at the website but they're not coming for help i think the average age for the sort of onset of ticks is around five to seven years old but of course they will be younger and they will be older and what happens with ticks as well is that they seem to sort of peak in intensity and frequency around the age of 11 and we can perhaps understand you know why that might be again it's maybe that time of transition from primary to high school hormones are coming in you know we have so much expectation and pressure on adolescents. So also having ticks at that time in your life must provide extra challenges. But um, I would say that if a parent is noticing ticks in their child, then I would just, I would keep an eye on it. As you say, if it's not problematic, if it's a sniffing tick or a blinking tick, and there's no underlying cause, you know, sometimes people with ticks end up going to allergy specialists, for example, because the GP or the parents have felt this, this must be an allergy. But actually, when you meet a healthcare professional who knows about ticks, they can identify, oh, actually, I think this is a tick. So I think talking about it is really important and talking to your child about it. You know, how does that feel? Can you without sort of singling them out and making them feel sort of caught up about it. But, you know, can they feel any sensation before the ticks come on? Can they suppress them slightly? You know, how does it feel for them? Do they have, there's something called the premonitory urge that some people report coming before a tick. So this is like a physical bodily sensation. It might be an itch. It might be a buzzing. It might be, mm. it might, some people describe it as painful. So I would talk about that with your child. And maybe keep a diary. That's always extremely useful. Maybe take some video of your child ticking so that you can show healthcare professionals. I think a word of caution from, well, this is a personal perspective. I probably wouldn't want to post those videos online, for example, of my child ticking. And I know that sometimes parents do in social media, Facebook groups and things like that, because they're looking for help and understanding. And I get that. But I think it's probably best to save those types of videos to show the health professionals. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant tip. I really do. I've had a parent write to me with some really interesting questions that I think about ticks that can open up our discussion a little bit. I think you've already answered this a little bit, but can functional ticks become chronic, i.e. last more than a year and therefore be termed as Tourette's? I think you said that the longevity of the ticks is an indicator for Tourette's, but that would have to be sort of clinically assessed. Mm. 
So I think those are two slightly separate. Now, I'm not a clinician either, so I would always say, you know, you must go to your healthcare professional and get advice. And uh, one of the patient associations, Tourette's Action, has a consultants list where people can go and get referred to a a specialist centre. But I think functional tics and tic disorders like chronic tic disorder and Tourette's syndrome are really separate diagnoses as far as I can understand. It may be that you have transient tics that, yes, I guess it could continue on for such a period of time and become impairing enough to then be termed Tourette's syndrome. But the functional tics, so this is where there is not a neurological explanation, but it's a psychological basis. And this is what clinicians seem to be saying that during COVID and and this great increase in young adolescent girls coming forward with tics, it's not they're indicating it's not Tourette syndrome that they're they're coming forward with. This seems to be functional in nature, therefore related to anxiety, etc., and things like that. So I, I'm not sure you can swap from a. Now you could have an overlay, of course. Now that's always possible where you have functional tics and also you have another kind of tic disorder as well. But at that moment, I would suggest that you know it's really important that you would see somebody who's expert in diagnosing that as well. And is it appropriate to approach one of those Tourette syndrome consultants, if you like, to just explore tics? You know, even if you're not sure your child might have Tourette syndrome, but you don't want to explore their history of tics? Absolutely. And I think, you know, this uh, charity that I mentioned already, Tourette's Action, you know, you might as a parent be going, well, it's, it's not might not be Tourette's. Of course, but, you know, they have so much information there about tics. And if you're interested in functional tics, there's another website called neurosymptoms.org. And that's uh, run by a neurologist called John Stone. And he's one of the world experts in functional tics and functional neurological disorders as well. So it can be complicated and it can be, it's been very complicated for the clinicians as well to cope with this sort of influx of adolescents sort of coming forward with these quite often sudden onset and quite dramatic type of tics as well. But I think as, as you and I will be aware, you know, a clinician has to take quite a comprehensive family history, don't they? And, and you know, there's a lot to map out. It's not a very simple situation to sort of just come up with some quick answers. And I think it's empowering for a parent to know that a consultant will take a really in-depth family history, isn't it? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. They need to talk about in the case of these adolescents in the last year you know talk about when onset was and what's happening and this is something else that parents can look at in terms of any kind of tick what's sort of happening just before the tick comes on are the ticks happening in every situation or is it just in perhaps a difficult time like transitioning or leaving to go to school or you know in certain situations so that will definitely be spoken about during any kind of consultation meeting and a family history taken as well and they'll be asked about the premonitory urge. And this is something that seems to be missing in these sudden onset cases, that they're unable to suppress any of these tics very well. Whereas we know that people with tic disorders can sometimes have some control and some suppression of their tics, as it's called. Yeah. So the sort of warning of the tic coming on doesn't seems to be missing in some of those cases. Yes. And these functional type of tics that have been appearing in adolescents as well. So there are some clinical indicators and and questions that can be useful for clinicians to be asking around ticks and around what's happening. One of the lovely tips that you've just mentioned, I want to return to it because it's something, you know, I think it's a, a, a researcher tip to keep a diary. I always say to families, keep a diary about 
their sleeping pattern, their eating pattern, the triggers in family life, the time of day when you see any sort of issue, could be a behavioral issue or it could be an anxiety attack, because you can present that data, if you like, to the clinician. And then it's such a fruitful place to start with any consultation, isn't it? Absolutely. And you're going there kind of armed with evidence and and there are websites like Tourette's Action that have, you know, pamphlets, et cetera, that you can take, that you can read and you can take to the GP and, you know, this referral list, as I said. But you may also, one of the sort of slightly complicating factors with tics and tic disorders is that um, everybody sort of starts off at the GP, of course, perhaps, or maybe school has indicated that they've noticed some tics happening and they might be speaking to the parents. But we sort of start off at the GP and then depending on where you are in the country, there's a kind of a variability in the clinical pathways that are around. And this can often be a, a point of great frustration for parents as well. And because of the nature of, of ticks, you know, you might end up seeing the GP, you might be sent to a pediatrician, you might see a neurologist who also is also ruling out other kinds of uh, conditions. You might see a psychiatrist, a psychologist, maybe a nurse therapist. So you know, it's, it's horrible to be bounced around between services as well. So if you're armed with as much information as you can be about who you might see, who you can see, what's available locally, what specialist services there are in the country, then I think that's a, a good starting point. But you also understand that's not possible for every parent. You know, they don't have the time and the energy. English might not be their first language. You know, there are extra complications, but hopefully that's where patient associations can also help give some support. Absolutely. And one of the things that just popped into my head is about the relationship between ticks and sleep. Is that a sort of established, sort of is there established literature on sleep and ticks? Is there anything reasonably quick that you could tell us about the relationship potentially between quality of sleep and ticks? Well, there's a study at the moment going on in uh, Dublin about sleep. And I think it's definitely an area of interest because parents will report often sleep difficulties. But again, the research is kind of lacking. You know, I'm not sure we can make firm conclusions, but people do tick in their sleep. It was thought that uh, in the past they might not, but this is still going on. And again, it's very variable. Maybe somebody is ticking a lot just before bedtime. They're tired so they're maybe their ticks are worse maybe they're a bit anxious about going to sleep or if it's school the next day of course that can be in their minds as well and I think that's where parents we can do a lot in terms of relaxation kind of strategies you know maybe putting some music on there's lots of meditation apps for example there's something called insight timer which has hundreds of options of either as guided relaxation or even just listening to the sounds of waves and rain and things like that Again, it really depends on the child and on what works for them. You know, maybe some aromatherapy oils or reading a story. Having a bedtime routine we know is very helpful because it starts to establish that. We know that switching off tablets and TV and screens for, um, you know, sometime before bedtime is also really helpful. So I think we just have to be mindful of that and integrate that into our parenting as well. And if I can just mention, a few years ago, I was collaborating with a group of people and we made a guided relaxation, not for children so much, but for adults specifically who had tics. And we found that, you know, a really high percentage of people who tried that found that very useful. 
And is that still in available for people to download? Yes, it's uh, it's on the Tourette's Actual web shop. I think it's about 99 pence and you can choose with or without a soundtrack. There's a kind of, I wouldn't say music, but a kind of soundtrack that comes along. So you can choose either version and yeah, people can try that and see see if that's something for them. Is that suitable for older teenagers as well? Is it just a case of sort of experimenting whether or not it's useful or not? Yes, I think, again, it depends, doesn't it? It might be the last thing that somebody likes and finds it irritating, or it could be something that uh, somebody goes, oh, yes, this is something that really helps me. But we did hear from the majority of people that they found it helped reduce their tics, they felt, and also for a period of time afterwards. So it's worth trying, isn't it? It's like all of these things. We need to keep sort of trying different things until we find something that works. And in general, it is about anxiety reducing measures and techniques and just trying to really innovate in in family life and see what works and what doesn't. Absolutely. And your child feeling supported is really important and how they're how they're doing in that moment. They might not want to talk about their tics, you know, and us using our language. I think there's there's been in the past, I think a lot of parents have felt terribly guilty because They've not understood what is going on. You know, will you will you stop doing that, please? Yeah, why are you doing that? Yeah. Yeah. And ticks can be irritating, of course, for the person. (laughs) You know, they're the one experiencing it. But a a loud shrieking tick going on and on at the dinner table, you know, it can make things it can make life really difficult. But um how we speak to to our children and sort of say, look, I can see you've had a difficult day, but you still need to do your homework, so have a break just now. You know, we want to make sure that we maintain those patterns. And expectations as well. And there's a routines in family life that can actually be quite calming, mm. knowing what's coming next, etc. Exactly. And we don't want to sort of reinforce accidentally. Oh, you've had a terrible day. I can see that, you know, forget about doing anything else. Just sit down, watch the TV. Actually, in a way, are we slightly reinforcing just kind of completely giving up on the situation. No, have a relaxation, have something to eat, and then we'll try your homework later on. You know, yeah. so that life is still going on. We're driving through those challenges without right. letting them get the better of us. And that's often what we see in the role models of these people who have had tick disorders their whole lives. And that's what they've found, the resilience within themselves. And they've got good support around them as well. And that's something that we could show to young people, newly diagnosed people to say, you know, your life is is not over. Yes, you've got ticks. It's going to be challenging. But look at these people. They've got through and they, they're living with this. And a lot of people say they, they wouldn't get rid of their ticks if given the choice. So, you know, it's an interesting perspective. It might not be something we assume. Additional thing that I've been thinking about is uh, a particular parent asked me about the longevity of tick attacks and wanted to, in this particular case, they were quite lengthy, you know, 45 minutes, you know, the child's unable to speak, roll their eyes, feel as if they have sort of dissociation from their out of their body, if you like, they feel like that. And I just wondered quite clearly, you know, a clinician can respond to that as well. But In terms of longevity of tick attacks, is there anything interesting that we should be highlighting there? I think people don't associate ticks with sort of a longer attack. And it also made me think about how difficult it must be for a parent to differentiate between a panic attack and a tick attack, if you like. I mean, I, I think my assumption is that they're both quite related in a way. It's almost like a spiral of anxiety that has sort of got out of control. But 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we can talk here about sort of general advice and, you know, suggestions, but really it's important that they do see a healthcare professional. But these are ticks that can, yes, as you see, it's a really intense bout of ticks and the person can be, you know, completely unable to get off the floor or, or do anything at that moment. And quite often they may be confused for epileptic fits and the person ends up in, in casualty, etc. What about diversity of tick? Is it common for a person to sort of stick to one type of tick or is it more common for lots of different ticks to emerge? Mm. This is a really, um, yeah, really important thing about ticks is that they wax and wane. So they come and they go. So you might find periods where the ticks are really not too problematic at all. And then other times where they're much worse. And it might be related to all sorts of things going on in their lives. But it can be associated with positive excitement as well. So you might find a child gets, you know, many more ticks around birthdays, Christmas, holidays, visiting Disneyland, etc. And that's, you know, there's nothing to be done about that. That's just, we have to accept that that's obviously going to be part of it as well. I suppose it's the same kind of emotional arousal. It's excitement, adrenaline is flowing. You know, it's quite interesting. I'd never thought about that. That's fascinating. Mm. And again, it's something families can think about when they're trying to put these ticks in context. Yes. And, you know, a particularly ticky day doesn't mean it's it's a bad day. It's just what it is. But I think where there's pain associated with ticks, that's definitely where you want to be going, right, we, we, you know, we'd like to go and see the healthcare professional, the doctor and, and get something put in place. And there's not that many treatments that can be offered. There are some medications. And obviously, we perhaps not always comfortable putting our children on medication. But there are also behavioral therapies as well, where you can access a therapist who's trained in behavioral therapy for ticks. And they can help people control and manage their tics. So they might give them different strategies. There's sort of different types of therapies where they either sit with the premonitory urge and it's rising and it's getting worse. And then they'll try and do that for longer and longer periods in the therapy session. And then they'll try and do that in the outside world, etc. It's exposure and response prevention. And then the other type of therapy is where they may do a competing response so instead of sort of throwing their arm up in the air, they might sort of quite purposefully put their hand on their hip and apply pressure so that they don't make that large movement. So there are these different ways, different strategies of control and management. And I think that's quite attractive to parents as well, that there is this therapy that they can sort of call on and the, and the person can use. You know, there are times where people just don't really want to tick whether you're in the cinema or an exam hall, and people are probably already using some of those strategies themselves, you know, uh, it, it, on public transport, etc. But behavioural therapy is a is a, a great tool to have. And again, Tourette's Action have a, a list of behavioural therapists where people can access that. And of course, one of the COVID advantages is that people are much more open to having therapy by computer remotely, so they can access. Hopefully, it shouldn't matter where you are in the country even if you don't have a behavioural therapist near you that knows about ticks, you can still access that remotely. That is so fantastic, isn't it? And, and you can hear sort of the displacement of tips and managing them. It really does need to be under a clinician's care because it's a very delicate and complicated business. It's not something a parent can easily do themselves. No, very complicated. It's a complicated condition. And it, as we started saying, it waxes and wanes, so it comes and goes as well. And, and with medications, of course, you need guidance, you need medication reviews, what's working, what's not, etc. So no, it really has to be under the care of a, of a specialist. But one of the interesting thing about 
Tourette's syndrome is that there's a, a belief that also by the time the young person is about 18, 20 in young adulthood, that there's about 50% of people whose tics have either diminished or they're in much better control by that point. So this is, it's a kind of two-edged sword. I, I would say to parents to be cautious because we don't also don't want the young people to get to adulthood and be terribly disappointed and upset if they still have tics for the rest of their life. You know, we don't want people to feel, oh, I wasn't the one of the ones whose tics diminished. I think it's about accepting, accepting this is part of you and, you know, meeting the challenges as we've spoken about already. Now, we have to talk about what's been in the press about the suggestibility of ticks. This is another theme that has gone on in the press and talking about the relationship between social media and ticks. Can you just explain what on earth the relationship is and could be between social media and ticks and how suggestibility has entered into that kind of discussion? Well, let's talk about suggestibility first of all. So this is an aspect of tics is that they can be suggestible. And if we think about, you know, we're already aware, for example, you and I are looking at each other on video just now. If I was to do a great big yawn, you would probably find yourself that you would also want to yawn. And we've got mirror neurons in our brain that are responsible for this. But the same with tics. Tics are also suggestible. So if you see me doing a tic and you also have tics, you might sort of pick up that tic for a short while. You might copy it, not sort of consciously, but it's just something that happens. And we've noticed that with the running um, patient support groups or people with Tourette's syndrome coming together is that they often feel a little bit nervous about coming along to social events because they're aware that they might sort of pick up new ticks. But often this only lasts for a few hours, maybe a day. And actually the, the benefits of being together and meeting other people with Tourette's syndrome is massive. You know, sometimes it's the first time they've ever met somebody else with Tourette's syndrome. So we do know there is suggestibility there. What has been happening in some of the papers that have come out is that I think there's been a suggestion that social media may play a part. I mean, we definitely cannot make any assumptions right now. And there are different social media platforms. I think that's that's important. But something that's been singled out is TikTok. And there's been perhaps some suggestions that would TikTok be playing a part in suggestibility, in the kind of spread of ticks amongst this young adolescent population. And again, I think we have to be really careful in what we're saying here. During the, the pandemic, etc., social media platforms, digital communication has been so important for people so that they're not cut off, that they do have access to information and support and uh, sort of meeting other people online, etc. My feeling is that different platforms have uh, benefits and disadvantages as well. So um, something like TikTok, I mean, it's a very fun platform. It's, you know, has a short format video outline so people can put short videos but it's not really the place perhaps to try and discuss what is a complicated issue as, as we've agreed or to signpost people to help some people do signpost to other platforms like youtube and i think that's where those other platforms can be useful because there's more support there's more directing signposting towards patient associations or materials and you can have a more in-depth conversation there whereas tiktok is really short videos, often it's showing motor and vocal tics in very extreme situations or, or, or at a very extreme level. 
I, you do wonder about the entertainment value. Now, I think, you know, we just we just want to be careful. And I would say to any parent, of course, is somebody picking up ticks from, from uh, TikTok? I think that's probably quite unlikely. But if a child or a young person is watching six, 10 hours of some kind of content online, you would begin to wonder, and it's the same for things like eating disorders, for example. We know there are triggers in terms of that. And if your young person is spending hours looking at eating, dieting videos, all to do with that kind of thing, you would worry that this might actually affect their mental health slightly and would not be the best thing for them to do. So I think that I would give the same kind of advice to parents in terms of, you know, maybe just be careful that your child's not watching TikTok videos over and over because it probably will set off ticks if they have a predisposition to it. And, you know, we've seen lots of TikTok videos, for example, where people are trying to recite poetry and finding it extremely difficult or trying to cook and, and waving knives about and things like that. And I question the use of that, really. We can see that it's difficult for them, but there's not much other information sort of coming across there. It feels quite voyeuristic, which, of course, is TikTok is all about you know, exposure and entertainment. I think one of the things that, again, everything is so nuanced, but somebody was telling me that they felt that their son who experiences tics, he finds suddenly a lot more social acceptance. Suddenly his friends understood what a tick was and he felt less stigmatized by the volume of tick videos online. So it's very interesting. It always depends on the individual child, doesn't it? And how, what their digital diet is, what their relationship to social media is. Is it helping or hindering? It's very complicated, isn't it? I think those are really important aspects. And the, the quantity that people are consuming and the quality as well is really important. But no, we, you and I are our adults, we're not. It's a very young age group that's looking at TikTok. So we need to also look at some of those aspects of what they are getting from it. You know, this social acceptance. And actually, we know there are more and more kind of very well-known celebrities coming forward saying that they have Tourette syndrome. So there's Billie Eilish and Seth Rogen, there's Casper Lee in the, in the UK. So I think acceptance is great. But we know from hearing and talking to people with Tourette's syndrome, it's not just about these vocal and motor tics that are being displayed on uh, TikTok. It's actually sometimes the problems are much more around the ADHD or the OCD or, you know, the hidden tics that we don't sort of think about. You know, there, there's lots of stomach clenching tics or toe clenching tics or... And that's very difficult to try and get across on something that's uh, a fun platform like TikTok and, and maybe just not appropriate. Absolutely. Now, in terms of how teachers can best support young people with ticks in the classroom, I do feel sorry for teachers because they're constantly, you know, they're at the front line and they're expected to pick up on everything and support children in multiple and holistic ways. But if you had the opportunity to address you know, the classroom teacher or the head of pastoral care in a school, again, you'd probably signpost them to many of the fabulous resources that you've already listed in some of those charities. But they've got 30 children in the class and they can see a child struggling potentially. Are there pre-existing plans of support that an educator could use to help that child cope better with sort of academic anxiety or pressure in school or managing the classroom environment? What would your advice be? I mean, I think the, the, the great thing is, is that teachers now are such more better informed about special educational needs than before. And so I would say that ticks, you know, again, sort of re you know, just being educated about what ticks are 
I think one of the issues that schools uh, and teachers have is that they may misunderstand ticks for bad behavior. Mm. And this can be true in the case where maybe it's a really large school or it's a member of staff that doesn't know the child and understanding that actually Tourette syndrome, for example, doesn't affect somebody's intelligence. They have a normal IQ uh, ability, for example. But misconstruing, for example, an eye ruling tick, that's a very common tick. But um, of course, eye ruling can look as though it's behavior. Oh, that child is you know, beh- behaving badly. So it's always really important to discuss with the child out of the classroom, you know, have a session on their own, perhaps with the parents, whatever they feel comfortable with, to really individualize something for them so that you can understand what it's like for them. Because again, we can't really apply a, a general plan. You need to find out what the child is having most difficulty with, really, and how they want the teacher to behave about the ticks also in the classroom as well. We really want to discourage you know, punishment for ticks and, um, yeah. And making sure the young person is part and parcel of that plan. You know, what can I do to help you is a great question for an educator or a parent to ask a young person. Absolutely. I mean, there are threats action again. They have an education manager, um, who can liaise with schools, for example, Tourette's Action have produced PowerPoint videos that either can be presented to maybe a group of staff or a class or a year group. Sometimes the young people themselves have actually got up and presented to their class. Again, that's a really individual choice, but the overall level of acceptance and understanding afterwards is usually much better. And I think, yes, in terms of other special educational needs, you know, to look at difficulties, for example, the ticks in the classroom, blinking ticks, head moving ticks, eye rolling ticks, for example, that's going to make looking at whatever board is at the front difficult. You know, it might be that if the child is trying to really control their ticks, I don't really like using the word suppress, but we'll say control. If they're trying to control the ticks in the classroom so that they don't stand out, you know, that their peers are going, what? Are you, why are you making that noise? So if they're concentrating so hard on trying to control this, they may be missing instructions, you know, lesson plans, uh, whatever it is as well. And also um, writing, handwriting. If you have, you know, movements of your body, it's, it's going to make handwriting difficult. Is there a way in which a school can assess the prevalence of ticks in a particular year group? The teachers always ask me that question. You know, is there a quick screening tool? Is there something they should be asking on the point of transition to better recognize some of these conditions? Wow, that's a really interesting question. I don't know. It would be good to have like a kind of observation schedule or something like that where, you know, we can we can perhaps look at that. I mean, I think if ticks are there, but they're not problematic, mm. then that's OK. I think early some early psychoeducation would be would be great, either with teacher or with a clinician. But, you know, with somebody who's been trained to sort of say, I notice, you know, you have ticks and how do you feel about it? How do you explain it to others? So kind of, and if the child is, is confident and it's really not causing any difficulties, then I, I think that's absolutely fine. But it's where the difficulties occur and the child feels awkward or is, is in pain, for example, that, you know, we want to start intervening and, and helping support them. I really like the idea of giving the Senkos uh, some sort of social scripts for managing those questions and also empowering the parent with some of those exploratory questions that feel they can have the confidence to ask about the ticks. I think that's really important. Mm. No, absolutely. 
Um, I mean, it's it's challenging in a class if you have a child with a you know a loud again a loud vocal tick or something like that. It can be challenging, and also there are some non socially inappropriate behaviours that come along with with Tourette syndrome sometimes, where they may have complex vocal tics. So they'll say things out loud, so phrases, words, but they may actually pick up or say the kind of almost the worst thing that they could say. So if a replacement teacher comes in and they happen to be bald or they happen to they happen to be something, then in some cases, some young people with tics may, you know, end up saying things and saying uh, terms that are abusive, but absolutely not meaning it. But it's their brain and the way that it's it's working. And Sean, it's, I know we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, I just want to ask you about OCD and tics. And uh, they seem to be quite co-occurrent. Can you tell us a little bit about the relationship between the two? And I know it's a big question, but something we, we want to ask. No, definitely. I mean, we know that with Tourette syndrome, for example, 85% of people with a diagnosis have a co-occurring condition. And so that could be ADHD, OCD, etc. And I think when people arrive at uh, clinics, it's important to know the clinician will do this, uh, look at a hierarchy of what is actually causing the most problems for that person at, at that moment? You know, is it actually the OCD that is really impairing their, their functionality? And maybe ticks would be slightly further down that hierarchy as well. I mean, we know that OCD is also anxiety related and people can have obsessions or compulsions uh, too. And it, it can be very distressing and really interfere with people's lives. And there does seem to be this, uh, you know, high co-occurrence with the Tourette syndrome. And there are also some tics which appear to be almost compulsive in nature. So it's very difficult to sort of pull them apart, you know, even for clinicians to, to work out. But it may be that if I do a tick on one part of my body, I feel this really enormous compulsion to do the same tick on the other side of my body to kind of have an evening up feeling. That's how people have described it. So it's about relieving anxiety in regards to OCD. That's where the slight difference is in terms of ticks as well. But it's important that people seek help for, you know, whatever they're experiencing. And again, OCD might be the most important and most urgently, you know, needs urgently treated more than the ticks, for example. But usually when people have maybe started medication for OCD or ADHD, then that's the time when they're most receptive perhaps to behavioral therapy for their tics because they've got more concentration, the anxiety is slightly lower, and that's when it can be sort of most useful in that journey that they're on. Well, you know, you've mentioned so many fantastic charities and patient groups and resources this morning that I'm excited for parents that they can go and start their sort of research journey. And it really is, isn't it? It's a sort of a, there's lots to learn and know. And I think just knowing that there is a community out there of, of other families going through similar things is very encouraging. So thank you so much for spending time with us. And we look forward to working with you in the future as well and, and keeping in touch with all the lovely work that you're doing. If people want to follow you on Twitter, would you like to tell us some of your links to your own work? Yes, sure. I mean, we can um, also add that in any kind of documentation. But my website is www.neuro and then there's a dash diverse.org. And uh, you can get all of the details there. I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter and I post quite regularly about research as well. And I'm really happy for people to get in touch. And I may signpost you somewhere else, but I'm, yeah, I have a kind of foot in quite a lot of different camps in the clinical camp and the research camp and in the patient community. So 
I'm really happy for people to get in touch and to pass on information. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for joining us and have a lovely summer, Sean. It's all the very best. It's been a delight to talk to you, Cathy. Thank you. And thanks for the work that you do. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.